0: Please open your Bible with me to John's Gospel, John chapter 1. Our plan is to spend two weeks with just a mini Christmas series. I plan to cover verses 1 through 13 today, and then Scott plans to cover verses 14 to 18 on Christmas Eve. Obviously, a tremendous passage, a well-known passage, and we went through John a number of years ago as a church, so I know this will not be brand new for most of us but it is a wonderful place to go to meditate when we think about the incarnation of the lord jesus so i'm going to read the first 13 verses of john chapter 1 and then we will we will dive into this wonderful passage uh, look along with me john chapter 1 starting in verse 1 in the beginning was the word and the word was with god and the word was god he was in the beginning with god Of God. Would you bow your head with me? Heavenly Father, we are thankful for the clarity with which You speak in Your Word on issues of such importance. The nature of Christ and the incarnation of Christ are spoken about with tremendous clarity in this passage and next Sunday's text. And Lord, I pray that you would give us eyes to see as we again think about this time of year and as we focus on the incarnation at Christmas time. I pray that we would understand who it was who was incarnate and laid in a manger in an animal's feeding trough uh, about 2,000 years ago. So, God, I pray that you would give us eyes to see who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I just prayed, my goal today is to focus on. The issue of Christmas kind of coming at it through the side door. So this is a Christmas sermon, although it may not feel in some ways like a Christmas sermon because it's really going to be a sermon about Trinitarianism and about who Jesus is because I want us to understand who Jesus is in order to be amazed by the manger. I think that there are a lot of people who believe there was a boy named Jesus laid in a manger, but there are very different versions of that Jesus that are taught and preached in different places. and to accurately be astonished at christmas to rightly be amazed by christmas we have to know who it is who is laying in that manger and if we get jesus wrong in his nature we're going to get all about christmas uh, incorrect uh, i just just mentioning here 2 corinthians chapter 11 verse 4 paul says to the corinthians in a rebuke he says this if someone comes to you and proclaims another jesus than the one we proclaimed or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted it, you put up with it readily enough. In other words, just because this individual is named Jesus that's being taught by someone does not mean that's the true Jesus. There are other Jesuses out there is what Paul says, but there's only one true Jesus. But there are many false Jesuses out there that are being taught by different people. And for Christmas to be what it is meant to be, we must understand who it is, who was laying in that manger. So I've got three points today. They go with our text, but they're out of the order. They're not in the same order as the text, and they should be there on the screen as well. I've titled the sermon, In the Beginning Was the Word. And my three points are very simple. Point number one, the Word, verses 1 through 5. Point number two, the World, verses 9 through 13. And then point number three, the witness verses 6 to 8. And I'm pretty sure I'm going to spend a good bit of time on this first point, proportionally speaking here. We'll, we'll see how it goes. But I'm, I'm assuming I'm going to spend, based on my preparation, I'm going to spend a lot of time on point one. You never know what's going to actually happen, okay? But that's, that's my best guess. We're going to spend a lot of time on point number one. So, uh, Let's just talk here about the opening verse. You, you cannot get a more significant, a more epic, a more incredible verse in Scripture than the first verse of John's gospel. Um, people have said, many people have said, you could say this about a lot of things, but they've said John's gospel in one sense is simple enough for a little child to, uh, t- to, to understand, and yet it's deep enough for the most profound theologian never to grasp the, the, the depths of what John is saying. So if, if you ever take an introductory Greek course, and I did very poorly in my introductory Greek course, if you're wondering, I'm not a Greek scholar by any means, I wish I were, but it just that part of my brain doesn't function like I wish it did. When I, when I took introductory Greek, uh, John is where people go. You go to the Gospel of John, you go to 1 John. These are, these are places you go to study Greek when you're very much in your infancy stages because John writes the simplest Greek in the New Testament. And what's amazing about John is he can write the most simple Greek statements and they translate into English with the same kind of simplicity and yet don't you know that you're far out of your depth when you actually read these simple statements in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God he was in the beginning with God you know that those words both in English and Greek are very simple they're very straightforward and yet, can you understand the magnitude of the theology behind what John is writing here? Let's just spend some time. I know it's Christmas, and maybe Christmas is not when you want to get really technical with things, but we're going to get a little technical today, okay? In order to better understand Christmas, let's think about this for a little bit. What is John thinking when he chooses the Greek word logos, the word word in Greek? Now, just like in English and in Greek, There are some words that have a very narrow semantic range. They only mean one or two possible things. And there are other words, both in English and Greek, that have a very wide or broad semantic range. One word can mean many different things, and you you figure it out based on the form of the word and the context the word is being used and on and on. Well, the word logos is used, oh, I don't even know the the number exactly. It's used hundreds of times in in the New Testament, and it can mean all kinds of things. It can mean a statement that you make. It could be speech. It could be reason. It could be all kinds of different things. But it means something very specific here in this text, and we know that because of how John uses the word in this verse here. I don't have to tell you that John's background is a pretty obvious chapter in the Old Testament. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Clearly, John is seeing himself writing a book on par with the book of Genesis which is either profound arrogance or humble truth, what John is doing here. There's no in-between. Either, John is beginning his gospel the way the, the book of Genesis begins. The Greek translation of Genesis begins with the words in arche, and John's gospel begins with the same words in arche. in the beginning, and then he says, he doesn't have the word God, which you might expect next, instead he puts the word word, logos, in the beginning was the word. And at first we might be perplexed by this, but let's think for a moment here. In Genesis 1, how does God create all things? He creates by speaking, let there be light. And there was light and God saw that the light was good. Let there be an expanse in the heavens. Let there be, let there be, let there be dry land. Let there be, God speaks about 10 different times. And then there was, so God creates through his word in Genesis chapter one. And We're also told that his spirit was hovering over the face of the deep. And John sees Trinitarian implications in the first chapter of the Old Testament. You've got God the Father, you've got the Word of God by, by which God creates all things, and you've got the Spirit of God. You've got a tr- Trinitarian picture that John sees in the very beginning of Scripture, and John is drawing that out. Psalm 33.6, you could jot down to look at later. John, uh, Psalm 33.6 says this, Again, I'm going to give you the Greek translation of the Old Testament. That's what John is looking at here. The Greek translation. Here's what it says in the original of in the Greek translation: By the logos of Yahweh, the heavens were made. By the word of the Lord, the logos of the Lord, the heavens were made. And by the breath, the spirit, the pneuma uh, of His mouth, all their hosts. So John sees this idea in the Old Testament that God created all things by His logos, by His word. That's explicit here in Psalm 33 and he's picking up on some themes. Let me complicate this a little bit further because the word has all kinds of meanings. Let me mention this. Wayne Grudem says this. If you go beyond the Jewish people, the Greek people, Greek thinkers also use this word logos in profound ways. Here's how Grudem says it. In Greek thought, the logos refers to the organizing or unifying principle of the universe. The organizing, unifying principle of the universe. Think of where we get the word logic, in a sense, from. The, the organizing, unifying, uh, unifying principle of the universe. The thing that held together and allowed to make sense out of everything else. What holds everything together and makes sense out of everything else. Don Carson says, in the case of those with that pagan background, they would soon discover that whatever they had uh, understood by the term logos, whatever, whatever, whatever they understood it to mean in the past, John the author whose work they were reading was forcing them into fresh and new thoughts regarding that word so why use the word word here's another reason if you want to get to know someone it's going to be very hard to do it without words so just think you get coffee with someone you sit down and imagine if for three hours you just let that person talk you ask them questions Over time, if that's an honest person, that person is going to unfold who they are, where they came from, what they're like, what they love, what they hate, what they long for, what they struggle with. If you just listen to someone for three hours talk about themselves and their life and what's going on, are you gonna learn a lot about that person? Yes, we learn by disclosing ourselves to others and we do it primarily through speech. Yes, our actions as well. Actions and words convey who we are. But if you're to sit down with someone if you just sat in one room with an honest person for three hours and they didn't do anything but talk could you learn a whole lot about that person's life yes and god has given up the right of privacy and he has disclosed himself god has decided to make himself known in public to a watching world god doesn't owe that to anyone to make himself known but God has chosen to forfeit the right of privacy and to make Himself known to a sinful world, and He does it through the Word, the Lagos, His Son. The idea is, if you want to see what God the Father is like, look very carefully at God the Son. Look at the Word. Look at the Lagos. Don Carson says it like this, God's Word in the Old Testament is His powerful self-expression in creation. Revelation and salvation and the personification of that word, that word coming into the form of a a, a person, a human being, uh, the the personification of that word makes it suitable for John to apply it as a title to God's ultimate self-disclosure, the person of His own Son. One more uh, scholar says it like this, we long to know who God is and what God thinks and does. In Jesus, His most personal word, God has spoken to us in the most human way possible, giving uh, giving us His innermost thoughts and heart in deeds that are as profound as His words. The author of Hebrews begins his book similarly epically when he says, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, He has spoken to us. By His Son. Do you hear that? He has spoken to us by His Son. How? The Son is the very Word of God. If you want to know God, get to know the Lord Jesus. As another scholar has said it like this, there is no God in heaven who is unlike Jesus Christ you hear what that's saying? There is no God in heaven who is unlike Jesus Christ. Of course, there is only one God. I'm not arguing that. But the point is, if you want to know the God who is in heaven, get to know the Jesus who came and was born and laid in the manger and lived the life that is recorded for us in Scripture because He is the one who makes known the Father. You remember in John chapter 14, when Jesus is at the Last Supper and He's talking to His disciples. You remember this, Philip? I love this. Philip said to Him, they're sitting around the intimate table. He's just washed their feet. Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. Remember that? Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long? Three years now, right? Have I been with you for three years? Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father? And the Father is in me. The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does His works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Jesus is saying, I am the perfect representation of the Father. And as Hebrews says, He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God. Listen to this. The exact imprint of god's nature and he upholds the universe by the word of his power the exact imprint of god's very nature the perfect image of the father he is the word of god in this sense now let me continue this is, i know this is gonna be a little technical like i said but let me just get into some things here i'm partly bringing this up because it's relevant and i'm partly bringing it up because. In the last month or so, we've had Jehovah's Witness knock on our door twice. The same was a lady and her daughter, and then she came back with her husband, and so they're probably going to come back again. And so I spent a little extra time thinking about Arianism, as you all do during the Christmas season. So Arianism, Arius was a false teacher around the year 300 AD. He introduced the idea that Jesus, the Word, He is not co-equal and co-eternal with the Father. Arius taught that Jesus was a created being lesser than the Father, but of a divine nature whatever exactly that might mean. So Jesus is of a, of a nature less than the Father. That was what Arius argued, and the church universally rejected that as a heresy uh, many centuries ago. But there are popular Arians today. They may not use the term, but they teach the same doctrine. You might have like a Unitarian Universalist church, which is going to be Arian in that sense. But let me spend a moment on Jehovah's Witnesses, because I think by comparing and contrasting here, we can see more clearly what Scripture really does teach and what is actually false teaching. Okay, So just stick with me here for a moment. Um, so I, I, uh, I was going to hold up a copy. I thought I, I, well, I left it in my car. Uh, but uh, th- I have the New World Translation of the Bible, which is the Jehovah's Witnesses Translation of the Bible, which is a deliberately uh, not good translation when it comes to the who Jesus is. They deliberately change what Scripture teaches about Jesus in order, to, in order to be Arians, in order to teach that Jesus is not equal with the Father. And as you probably know, many of you know, uh, uh, the, their infamous translation of John 1.1 could not be more famous. They say, in the beginning the Word was, and the Word was with God, and the Word, was a god lowercase godi just want to spend a moment on this and talk about why we don't translate it that way. On the Jehovah's Witness website, it, this is I looked it up this week, jw.org says this, quote, in the first occurrence of the word god here, the word was with god. In the first occurrence of the word god, uh, the word god is preceded by the Greek definite article, like the word the in English. Greek definite article comes before the word God, in the first occurrence of the word God. And it says here, the article does not appear before the second occurrence. The, uh, The word was God. There is no definite article there. So, they conclude the word Jesus Christ did have a beginning. Now, that may just sound like, I mean, you may say, I have no idea how to even begin a response if someone were to bring that up at your door. They say, okay, there is the word, the God, appears first, which shows you we're talking about God the Father, but then later when the word is God, there's no the, there's no definite article. So we should translate it with the indefinite article, which is a, not the. And so they would argue, see, in the Greek text, there's a definite article, so we just translate it, God, capital G, no indefinite article, that's got to be a, God, lowercase G. And my guess is for most of us, we're just going to go, I have no idea. (laughs) What what do we, how am I supposed to respond to that? Well, there's two ways. I want to say something technical. I'm going to say something simple that I think everyone can understand, but let me start with the technical side just for a moment. Uh, I just want to be clear here about this this, this argument that they bring up. Why would John not have the definite article before God when it appears at the end of verse 1? The Word was God. Why no definite article there? And uh, the answer is a couple reasons. Number one, if John were to include the definite article at the end of the verse, he might confuse us into thinking that the that the Word was God the Father, as in they were the same person. The Word was God the Father. There was no distinction of person, which is not what John wants to communicate. He wants to communicate that they are of the same essence, one God, but they are distinct persons. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Father, but there is only one God, and they are both truly God. That's one reason. Number two, if John wanted to communicate that Jesus was a God or a divinity of some lesser sort, he could have used a different Greek word. The word not theos, but the word thios, which is the word translated divine in 2 Peter 1. And other scholars have mentioned this. So John doesn't do that, which he could have easily done to communicate that Jesus was less than God the Father. Let me mention one other thing. Did you know that the word theos, the word God, is translated with God with a capital G even in the Jehovah's Witness Bible in John chapter 1 in four other places? Look with me, verse 6. There was a man sent from God. Do you see that right there? Do you see the capital G? A man sent from God, capital G. Even the Jehovah's Witness translate that with a capital G God. But guess what? There's no definite article before that word God. There's no definite article. Why don't they translate it a God? Because their theology is, tra- is determining how they translate the Bible, not translation. Verse 12, but all to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. There's no definite article before the word God there. Verse 13, at the end of the verse says, but of God, there's no definite article there. And verse 18 uh, no one has ever seen God, that also has no definite article. Now, do you see my point? If it was simply just a Greek rule, that if there's no definite article, you translate it a God, wouldn't they change the whole way they translate this chapter? Yes, which they don't. Now, if you're getting lost, I understand. Let me get to something more simple and straightforward. Look at verse 3. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Now, here's a simple illustration And maybe I'll use it with the Jehovah's Witnesses if they come back to my house in the next few weeks. It's a very simple illustration. You can do this on a napkin or a piece of paper. Here's all you have to do. You get a napkin out and you just draw, essentially, you put put a line down the middle of the napkin. And on the right side of the napkin, you put everything that has been made. Everything that has been created, you put on one side of the napkin. And then on the other side of the napkin, you put uh, that which was never created. Okay? So that which was created on one side, that which was not created on the other side, and then you ask the question. And if you're asked, talking to an Arian or any Jehovah's Witness, you'll, you'll say, which side does Jesus go on? And maybe you could even use a coin or a pen or something that can mark the thing or put a coin on the side. Okay, which side should Jesus go on? And Arians will say, Jesus goes on what side? They will say he goes on the side of created being. They'll put him on the, he was created. And then say, okay, can we read verse three again of John chapter one, all things were made through Him. Him here is the Word. That's Jesus. And without Him, without Jesus, was not anything made that was made. Now, ask again, according to that verse, does Jesus belong on the side of created beings, or does Jesus belong on the side of uncreated beings? And the answer is, Jesus has to be uncreated because everything that was created was created by Jesus. So if everything that came into being, everything that was created was created by Jesus, then Jesus, by definition, cannot be a created being. And so I think that would be a very simple way to show that John could not say it more clearly. Let me say it again. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So this could not be clearer. Is Jesus put in the same category as God the Father? Yes, He is co-equal and co-eternal to God the Father. Jesus is not a God. He is God. He is of the same nature as God the Father. And just to back this up more, if you read through John's gospel and you know this, does John teach clearly that Jesus is God throughout the rest of his gospel? I'll just give you a couple samples. You know, you know these. Jesus answered them, John five seventeen. My Father is working until now. And I am working this was why the Jews were seeking to kill him because he was calling God his own father making himself equal with God John 8 58 Jesus said to them truly truly I say to you before Abraham was ego Amy I am as in I am who I am as in I'm Yahweh as in I'm the God who eternally exists before Abraham was I am that is a claim to divinity to deity John 14, 9, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. And how about this one? Remember doubting Thomas? He goes those eight days, really basically a week in Jewish county. He goes a week after everyone has seen the risen Jesus. He hasn't seen him. And he says, unless I touch the nail prints, I'm never going to believe. And what happens that next Sunday evening? Jesus appears before him and says, Thomas, don't doubt. Touch, see the nail marks. And what does Thomas say? Thomas says, my Lord and my God. Literally in the Greek, the Lord of me and the God of me. Definite articles included. How does the Jehovah's witness respond to that verse? And I'm not kidding you. I read this off their app, which I did download because, well, anyways, here's what, here's what, here's what they said. This is, not, this is a study note on their app. You ready? This is how they explain it. And I'm not making this up. Some scholars have suggested that Thomas may simply have made an emotional exclamation of astonishment, spoken to Jesus but directed to God. In other words, he said, OMG. That that, that is blasphemous on top of being horrible theology. So, so he he looks at Jesus and in the Greek it says, I'm I'm not kidding you, the Greek says, Thomas answered him, and the word him in Greek is the word for the it's the word for us, it's a singular masculine. He's talking to Jesus in a singular. He answered him, Jesus. So Thomas is talking to Jesus individually, singularly, and he says, You are my Lord and my God, the Lord of me and the God of me. And one speculation is maybe he was basically an, an emotional exclamation of astonishment directed at God. Basically using God's name in vain. That's one possible way. Do you see what you have to do to get around what John is teaching in his gospel? Uh, th- that, is not, that is not the way to interpret this. How about this? In, in, in Revelation, when John, the author of this gospel, falls down in, in, in a sense of worship before the angel, what does the angel say? Don't do that. Get up. And yet, when people fall down to worship Jesus, what does he do? He, he accepts it. He accepts that, again, that is something that only God can accept, which is worship. Even an angel says, get up off your knees. Don't worship me. Don't bow prostrate before me. I'm a created being. But Jesus allows it and encourages it when people fall down in worship of him. Jesus clearly is equal to God the Father. Much more could be said, but we must keep moving here. I want to also deal with another false teaching about the Trinity that is connected to our text. It's called modalism. And, and I mention this not because it's just a random thing, but because it's relevant. I know people who live in this city who are modalists. I, I know them. They call themselves Christians, and they, they live in the city. I went on a church website, a church that's not far from here, and I looked up their page because I knew that they were modalists, and I looked on their doctrinal statement just two days ago, and I copy and pasted it on here, and I won't name the church, but here's what the church says in, in the Athens area, quote, we believe in the oneness of God. This is called oneness Pentecostalism, or jesus Onlyism. It's also known as modalism. It's it's an ancient heresy about the Trinity. Here's what they say on their website. We believe that the one God who revealed Himself in the Old Testament as Jehovah revealed Himself in His Son, Jesus Christ. That may not sound bad, but listen to this. Quote, this is off their website, thus God is manifested as Father in creation, in the Son for our redemption, and as the Holy Spirit in our regeneration. When you hear the idea that there's one person in the Godhead, and he, he manifests Himself as the Father in creation. He manifests Himself as the Son in uh, redemption. And then He manifests Himself as the Spirit in our age today. That is... sign of modalism or what is called jesus onlyism it's the idea that there is yes one god but they also argue that there's only one person in the godhead and that that one person plays three different roles he plays the role of father in creation he plays the role of the son in the incarnation then he plays the role of the holy spirit during the time of redemptive history that we're in now but that is not what scripture teaches in john 1 it says the word was with god and the word was god which means you have a plurality of persons, but only one God. The Word was with God, God's eternal fellow. The Word was God, God himself, divine. So you see here that you have, this, you have distinction of person, but only one God. And so we, we reject modalism. Um, this is, why, by the way, why every single illustration people come up with to illustrate the Trinity is a heresy. Every single one. When people say it's like you know water and liquid and gas, no, no, that's a heresy. When you do the three-leaf clover, that's that's the heresy. Every single, you know, I'm a father and a pastor and a husband, that's like the trinity. No, that's modalism. That's a heresy. So whenever people come up with an illustration from this world to illustrate what we don't have any other example of in this world, you're going to end up in heresy. So what we have to simply say is we don't have a human illustration for the trinity. But what we know is this, what we can affirm with all of our heart from Scripture and from church history is this. That there is one eternal God. The Bible could not be more clear about monotheism. We do not believe in tritheism, that the Father is one God, the Son is a separate God, and the Spirit is a separate God. We reject tritheism or polytheism. We believe in one Creator God who has eternally existed as three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And John teaches the essence of the Trinity in crystal clear language in these first verses of John's Gospel. And it's four o'clock. I'm not done with point one, so we're, gonna, we're in trouble here. Okay, verse, verse four. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Let me just uh, say this briefly. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men i don't know what you think about this but do you have this feeling somewhere inside of you and if if you do i know this is wrong maybe if you're not a believer you really have this feeling do you have this feeling that if if you got really devoted to jesus your life would become less enjoyable less meaningful less significant more of a straitjacket of moral laws that have no joy or life in them, and you're going to become a legalist and a Pharisee and self-righteous, and you're going to become a a jerk to be around, and you're going to become all this arrogant person. Is that how you visualize getting closer to Jesus in your life? Now, I think for most of us, we would say no. But if you're not a believer, you may feel that way. You may think to get close to Jesus is to get further from what is life, to get further from what's enjoyable. It's going to turn my life into something other than the light and and gladness and life, I want to tell you that that is not just a lie. What Scripture teaches is that Jesus, listen, in Him was life. So, this Word who is God made flesh is the very source of all life. And I think this is a double meaning here. I think He means physical life. All physical life comes from Jesus. He's the creator of all physical life, both human and animal, but far more significantly, He's referring to spiritual life. In other words, if you look at your own life right now, would you say, you know what, I am truly, I am truly alive, I, I, I am truly alive, I am, I am experiencing all that, that, that God has made for me, or would you say, no, I'm, I'm somewhat miserable, I'm struggling with various things? Jesus says, listen, I am the source of all life. I came that you might have life, have it abundantly. It's the thief that steals and kills and destroys. Whatever the world has told you, if you want a true thrill out of life, true joy in life, true gladness and satisfaction, if you want to be truly alive, or to do what Paul says in 1 Timothy, to take hold of that which is truly life, go to the source. And the source is Jesus, the Word made flesh. In Him was life and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not overcome it. Light. So I read that at the beginning of the service just a minute ago from Isaiah chapter 8. We see here Israel in a time of darkness and judgment and exile. And God says, those who sat in darkness think shadow of death language, have seen a great light. And then a moment later, he mentions the Davidic king who has been born mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace, who's going to come and reign. And here's what, we, here's what we see. Light means this. This is a metaphor, of course, that says it's compared to... John is allowing the Genesis 1 creation story to be a background, but he is talking about spiritual light and spiritual life primarily. And here's what he's saying. Many people don't really know why they're here on earth. You ask someone about ultimate questions. I mean, they can talk about their job. They can talk about grades in school. They can talk about how much money they make. They can talk about those kinds of things. But when you get to the ultimate questions, a lot of people don't have answers. And John is saying, listen, if you don't have ultimate answers to the ultimate questions of why I am here, where am I going to go when I die? How do I know God? How do I live an objectively meaningful life and make an impact on other people for great good and for, for eternal purpose? If you don't have answers to those questions, I don't care how much money you make or what you're doing with your life, you are in the dark. Because to have light means to know what's going on right you walk into a room in the middle of the night you turn the light on because you don't want to bump into something to, to be in the darkness means I don't know the ultimate answers to the ultimate questions I am living in darkness I might know how to make money and make friends and party and do this and that but I don't know the ultimate purposes for why I'm here and so Jesus says I can open I can open up the I can turn the lights on and I can give you light I can show you what life is all about, and that ultimately that purpose is to be found in in me and in what I have come to bring to you. Richard Phillips says this, this is what John wants us to see in Christ. In him was life. Are you really living? Do you feel that your life matters for something important? Are you excited about things or just keeping occupied? Jesus has come to give us true life. Okay, point two, I will move more quickly here. Point two, the world, verses 9 to 13. We'll skip ahead. Uh, we'll come back in a second. Verse 9. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. This is the, of course, the irony of the Christmas story, which is that Jesus is born. And even though the Bible scholars of their day in Matthew 2, who can quote chapter and verse where the Messiah will be born. Oh, we know that one, Herod. That's easy. That's Micah chapter 5, verse 2. They didn't have verses back then, but they knew where to find it. They said, look the 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 son of david will be born in bethlehem ephrathah there's no question about it it's just a few miles away from jerusalem chapter and verse they quote it and yet what happens when the when the coming one comes none of there's no record of a single one of the jewish leaders walking the 5 mile trek to bethlehem Not a single one of them goes. Herod, who is the king of the Jews, right? Ironic, because Jesus is the king of the Jews. And Herod's thinking, this town is not big enough for the two of us. And so Herod finds out that another king is born, vying for control of his throne. And if you know the story about Herod, he had already had two of his sons killed. He had his favorite wife put to death, and which tells you, you wouldn't want to be his least favorite wife. He had his favorite wife put to death, according to Josephus, around the same time because they were threatening to take his throne from him and to give it to one of his sons. He was paranoid at the end of his life. He was having family members killed. He arranged for many leaders in Jerusalem to be murdered on the day that he died so that all Jerusalem would mourn on the day of his death, according to Josephus, a first century non-Christian Jewish historian who tells us that. So Herod was, was now listen, when Herod finds out, look, the coming one has come. These magi have come from the east. The star is coming out of Jacob. He is here. The the light has come into the world. There's the star. There's evidence that God has sent the saving one. Herod's response is one of anger and self-protection, and he is willing literally to shed the blood of innocent children, boys to and under, in order to protect his throne. The light comes into the world, and the world rejects the light. Now, let let me just say something here. And by the way, this is true of all of us left to ourselves. The reason why we don't love Jesus more, or if I'm, if I'm not yet a believer, the reason I don't yet trust Christ, can I, can I be honest here? And I know some may object to this, but I think this is true at the fundamental level. The objections to Christianity and our own resistance, even as Christians, our resistance to God at times, which is our sin, they're not the resistance to the light is not fundamentally an intellectual problem. I'm not saying there aren't intellectual questions, and we should be able to give a defense for why we believe what we believe. There are are intellectual questions. But fundamentally, what keeps us from Jesus, and this is everybody in this room apart from the Spirit of God, what keeps us from Jesus is not intellectual or philosophical problems. What keeps us from going deeper with God is that we love the darkness rather than the light, and we don't want to come to the light lest our deeds of evil be exposed deep down it is a moral reason unbelief is moral I should say it is immoral but un- unbelief is a moral category it's not about ignorance it's not it's not about uh, an intellectual issue fundamentally the the the, uh, the the residual effects of unbelief even in my soul as a believer right I believe help my unbelief even the residual unbelief in my heart is owing to moral evil in my life so fundamentally the light was rejected by the darkness not because It didn't make any sense intellectually, it was because morally we didn't like what it said about ourselves. We didn't like what it demanded of us. We didn't believe that it was good for us. We thought that he was a killjoy and so we wanted to be rid of him and that is why we rejected him. So, please, don't mask and Photoshop your sin or mine. It's not simply, oh, I just didn't know better or, oh man, if I just had a little more information, no. Fundamentally, my resistance to Jesus is a moral issue. and it has to do with an immoral posture of my heart that prefers darkness to light. It prefers evil to what is good. It prefers unholiness to holiness. And it is only by a miracle of God's grace that my eyes open and I see the glory and beauty of Jesus and I willingly and freely embrace. In fact, we see that here at the end of the text. Verse 12. So he came to his own. He was rejected, verse 12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Let me just ask you, to receive him means to believe in his name. Okay, th- those are synonyms. To as many as received him who believed in his name. Those are the same thing. To receive Jesus means to believe in his name. And what does that mean? His name represents all that he is. So to receive him, what what does it mean to believe in Jesus? It means to receive him for who he is, which means I'm receiving him as the Lord of my life who will tell me what to do because he knows what's best for me. And I want to willingly obey him. I will receive him as savior of my life because he will forgive my sins through his death on the cross. And he resurrected the new life so he can rescue me. I receive him as savior. I also receive him as treasure. He is the joy of my life. He's the satisfaction of my soul. I receive him as the treasure of my life. And if you can say honestly that you have received Jesus as your savior from sin, you want him to save you both from the penalty and the power and the presence of sin in your life because you hate it. You receive him as your Lord who can tell you how you should live. And you receive him as your treasure, what you, what you love and are devoted to. If you can say, I have received Jesus as those things, then you have truly received him. You have believed in his name. You've received him for who he is. And ultimately, who gets the credit for that? Verse 13. How do we become children of God? Verse 13, who were born not of blood, that is not of bloodlines, not because I was born Jewish or Gentile or whatever, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. We have to at rock bottom say it is by God's grace that we are saved. James Hamilton says it like this. The logic of these statements seems to indicate that the birth of God these people have experienced happened prior to their reception and belief in Jesus. If the choice to believe in Jesus resulted in the birth, it would be difficult to see how John could say they were born neither of the will of the flesh nor of the will of man. And later in John's gospel, chapters 3 and 5, make that clear. All right, our last point, point number three, go back to verses 6 to 8, the witness. So we've seen the word, we've seen the world. And now let's look at the witness, verses 6 to 8. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. So, what is said of John, I hope could be said of all of us in many ways here. We're not in his exact role, but we have a similar role to be a witness. And here's what we can say. Number one, in one sense, we're nothing compared to the light, right? We're nothing compared to the source of light, but we are a witness to that light. We are meant to point people to the light that has saved and rescued us, right? We're supposed to point people to that light. And here's what we're told. People believe through him. He was not the light but he came to bear witness and people believe through him so when we go to speak to others about christ and encourage others in christ we got to say like paul said we are jars of clay we are brittle cracked clay pots that's all we are but we have within us a treasure which is the gospel and so the treasure does not originate in us we can claim no credit for it we are much like the moon that can provide great light only as it reflects the source coming from the sun. And we provide light through our witness, not because we're the source, but because Jesus Himself is the light of the world. Oh, I want to wrap up uh, with this. Wherever you're at today, maybe you're a believer and you're walking faithfully with the Lord. No one is sinlessly perfect in this room, but maybe you're you're walking with, with a measure of real obedience. But my guess is that there are people in different places. So, yes, certainly if you're an unbeliever, I want you to hear what I have to say. But maybe you find, like I feel myself so often, just in different areas of spiritual growth or spiritual decline. Moments where your joy is going down, right? Where you're not trusting the Lord like you should. Here's what I want to say as a comfort for us as we as we wrap up this message. Yes, he is the word of God, he is the revelation of the Father. Yes, if you've seen Jesus, you've seen God. Yes, he is co equal and co eternal with the Father. Yes, there are three persons eternally existing as our one God. But what's amazing is that this God, this God, took on flesh and dwelt among us, which means he came near to us, he, he moved in close where we live. He came within arm's reach of us. He came in the midst of the human race. What does that tell you about the word made flesh? Is that He cares about us. He is slow to anger. He rejoices in what is true. And for those who are weary, running low on strength, He delights to renew our strength like eagles. So we will walk and not be weary. We will run and not faint. Why? Because this word made flesh is kind. He's gracious. He is tender. He is one who is patient. He is one who lifts up the downcast. He is one who provides strength to those who have nothing left. He is the one who we can reach out to for renewal and refreshment whenever we need it, which is going to be continuously. So, let us reach out to Him even now, and let's bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, we want to rightly understand what we are celebrating at Christmas. We are not celebrating the birth of a semi-divine person named Jesus. We're not here to celebrate the birth of a God, lowercase g, named Jesus, who was the supposed first and greatest created being of Jehovah God. We are not here to celebrate the Jesus of Mormonism, who is also a created being and brother of Lucifer and on and on it goes. No, we are here to celebrate the word made flesh, the word who was eternally with God and who eternally was God, and the God who, as he took on flesh and moved in amongst people, sinners, attracted broken, sinful people to himself, so that even the tax collectors and the sinners were drawing near to hear him. What an amazing God that we serve. And Lord Jesus, we thank you for the incredible humility that you demonstrated in being born in the conditions in which you were born to be laid in an animal's feeding trough so that we could see the heights that you came from and the depths to which you stooped. And certainly the manger would be only the beginning of your humbling of yourself, As we think about what Paul said in Philippians 2, although equal with God, he didn't consider that something to be grasped or exploited to his own advantage, but instead he took on the form of a slave, a servant, and was found in human form and became obedient, not simply to a manger, but we know how the verse goes. He became obedient unto death. And of all the ways that a person could die in this life, it's amazing that the verse would end with the words, he became obedient unto death. And then those, those words, even death on a cross. Uh, Lord, that, that is astonishing truth. So, I pray even as we sing now, Lord, that we would not lose the gospel truth and the love and the sacrifice that is demonstrated so clearly in this message. And I pray this Christmas, we would understand that the Word made flesh the divine second person of the eternal Trinity, took on a human nature so that nails and spear could pierce Him through. Help us to think about that, Lord, to speak with others about that, and to share that good news with others who need to hear it as desperately as we do. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.